Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us and pray that you'll be blessed by the truth of God's Word today. And now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, turn to Revelation all the way in the back, right before the maps, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, we are in session 30 of our look at the book of Revelation, and we're actually beginning to wind down a little bit um, as we approach the conclusion of the book. But today we're talking about the case against Babylon, against uh, the city of man, as opposed to the city of God. Now, I haven't gone over this for a while, but this is the way that God himself gives the outline of the book of Revelation. In 119, he says to John, through the voice of Christ, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after these things. What is, meaning the risen Christ, or excuse me, what you have seen, meaning the vision of the risen Christ. What is, meaning the present day situation of the seven churches in, uh, in chapters two and three. And of course, the rest of the book is spent in this area of prophecy, which John himself identifies as prophecy. So we've talked about the heptatic structure of Revelation, meaning the enfolding network of sevens, the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven vials of wrath, all of which by this point in the book have been accomplished. But there are still a multitude of other sevens. There are seven benedictions. There are seven uh, songs of praise. There are seven times that, uh, well, at any rate, seven churches again. So there's, a, I would defy someone to try to come up with a list of, an exhaustive list of all the sevens that are not expressly mentioned in the book of Revelation. Anyway, so that's the setup to today. But before we go any further, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we come before your throne asking you for wisdom. Lord, wisdom in guiding us through this book so that uh, you may use it to enrich us, that you may use it to bless us and to compel us to do your work. Lord, as we seek to be ministers of reconciliation from your kingdom to those who are in rebellion against it, as well as those who just desperately need your encouragement, Lord. So help us to be better messengers of your salvation in your grace. In the most holy name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're talking about, again, the, the prophetic image of Babylon, what Babylon represents, what Babylon is before the Bible. And a lot of this has to do with what we covered in last session. Babylon is a city organized in rebellion against God. We saw that with um, both in Genesis chapter 11 at its rise as Babel and with the coming of the first royal leader, uh, the emperor who would be called, known as Nimrod. It turned into a global empire with a centralized ruler that we just covered. And it's, it's also mentioned several places, especially in the book of Seven Kings, as a military force, a militaristic empire that was targeting the people of God. It's the birthplace and the center of the spread of paganism throughout the earth. Um, it's condemned as such in the last session. The Lord 
will destroy and silence the city and everything that it represents according to the prophet Jeremiah. And it will be conquered by Christ. There's that Christmas uh, prophecy that we use every year in Micah 5, which does allude to Christ's first appearance on the earth, but it also talks about the fact that he would play a pivotal role in the conquest and under destruction of Babylon. Talking about it as the center of paganism from the last session, we mentioned that from the description of John, she drinks from a golden cup. And that's a reference back to Jeremiah 51. That this is a symbolic of enforced and systematized paganism and the destruction that befalls it. In fact, we were talking about um, in looking at the reign of, of King Manasseh, how he fell to paganism. He was a, a, a descendant of David. He was a ruler over Judah. And yet he participated in child sacrifice because he turned away from God and turned to the Baals, which come from this area. Babylon is seen drinking or taking pleasure from her rebellion, reaping the benefits of physical wealth, of material possession, and so on. But she's drinking the blood of the saints. The grapes that she pressed to make the wine that she is enjoying are the lives, the, the, the physical lives of the saints, as well as the spiritual lives of those that believe in her paganistic message and turn against the God who can rescue them, who wants to bring them into the fold of heaven. So she enticed the nations by making them addicted to their circumstances. She's promising them happiness. Happiness, again, being akin to happenstance that the circumstances of your life have to be in such and such order before you can be happy, as opposed to the spiritual uh, significance of joy, which carries you through all of life's circumstances, which can only be feel, uh, felt in the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. But that's another sermon. Let's move on. So it's an addictive bias that Babylon, through paganism, is setting up throughout the rest of humanity, the, the rest of the nations of the world. She's profiting from the death of others, as we've just talked about. And again, from the physical death of the faithful and the spiritual death of the citizens of earth. If you're born twice, you only die once. If you're born once, you die twice. In either event, she's reaping from the deaths. The physical clues to the prophetic truths that we found in the last session is that she's, first of all, she's wearing purple, which is a very ancient symbol of authority, of empire. So she's claiming authority that she does not actually have entitlement to. She's also wearing scarlet, or what your Bible helps would translate into a fire red, meaning that she's literally wearing conflict, that she's the bringer of conflict, the bringer of destruction. She wears a lot of precious stones which symbolize wealth, but she's also wearing pearls in particular. Pearls, of course, come from shellfish, which means she's profiting over the fact that she is unclean, that she is alienated from God, and that she's using that to her physical advantage and to her spiritual death. She's riding on top of the dragon, means, meaning that she has this sense of delusion of, self, of, of control over her own situation. So the basic interpretation that we can draw from this 
strange image that John presents us with is that Babylon itself has gained power by sacrificing the spiritual lives of the citizens of the earth and the physical lives of the faithful. She's riding the dragon and in the drunkenness of her opulence is deluded into believing that she is in control. However, the beast is using her and will dispose of her after she has outlived her usefulness, which is precisely what we see happen at the end of the last chapter. So now we are in Revelation chapter 18. The pronouncement of the final judgment of Babylon, the city of the fallen. So starting with verse 1. Turn with me there again in your copy of God's Word as we read together. <clears throat> After this, I saw another angel with, a great, with great authority coming down from heaven, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. He called out in a mighty voice, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Meaning the human authority that we're ruling within Babylon at this time is no more, and it has literally become a city of the enemy. That the devil himself, along with his minions, are in full possession, possibly literally, of the city. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, meaning her, her detest on this monogamous relationship that we're supposed to have with God, this unity relationship, uh, which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her sensuality and excess. God demands faithfulness. God does not suffer anyone to be worshipped in the hearts of his creation but himself. And this is the final outcome of what happens when we deny that. So after these things, we saw that the municipal powers of Babylon of the city were overturned by the enemy himself, the enemy that she was riding in the last chapter. The physical or human aspect of the city has fallen. Uh, she has been occupied by the spiritual forces of the enemy. And again, uh, we're listed demons, unclean spirit, unclean beasts. And this actually harkens back to something that I want to touch base on you with you really quickly. And you'll need to write this down in your notes. It's called the rule of expositional constancy. Let me say that again. The rule of expositional constancy. For any of you that, that study the Bible regularly, that's a $40 way of saying that if somebody writes in the Bible a prophetic image or a prophetic symbol, that symbol maintains its definition through the whole of Scripture. And one of the best examples that I could give of this, strangely enough, is the word birds. Uh, now, in some places, Jesus mentions doves and so forth, but when you see the term bird generically, particularly with the word unclean next to it, we take a look back to the way that Jesus describes his own parables in Matthew chapter 13. And in that passage, he writes to us, and he's, he's talking about the parable of the sower here, where he uses 
birds coming down and devouring the seeds as a prophetic image. And he writes, or excuse me, he speaks to his disciples, Consider the sower who went to sow. He sowed some seeds that fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. And he concludes the, the, the parable. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly, and the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up and it scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still others fell on good ground, and the ground produced fruit, fruit some hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what it's sown. Let anyone, and here's that phrase that we need to pay attention to, let anyone who has ears listen. But in this passage, several uh, verses down, he actually explains what birds mean in that picture image. Listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, and this is where we come in as teachers of the faith. This is where we come in as witnesses. And that's everybody, not just the pastor, but all of you as well. That's why you all need to understand this stuff. For your children and grandchildren, if nothing else. The evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. Who are the birds? The evil one. The birds symbolize physically represent the ministry of Satan, which comes down to snatch the word of God out of the hearts of those who don't understand it. My, don't we see that in today's time? Anyway, moving on. What, what, but still, in that very same chapter of Matthew, we get another parable that mentions birds, and here it is. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that men took and sowed in the field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when, it, when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and rest in its branches. Now, if you didn't understand what we were talking about in birds from that previous parable, you would think that Jesus here is just talking about the height of a German mustard plant, which is roughly a, the a height of a small, or a tall shrub rather, going into tree. But anyway, when we mention the fact that it's, it's when you understand that symbolically birds are the enemy, it takes on a whole new significance. Effectively, what it means is the greater your faith becomes, the more it will be tempted the more it will be tested. The stronger a church becomes, in fact, the more the enemy will try to get a foothold with inside it and try to nest there. That's what Jesus is trying to say. He's trying to warn us that as we grow in faith, we will be tested on our faith. That's So when you understand that a symbol somewhere else in the Bible has a relationship all the way through, Stories like this take on an entirely new meaning, one that we need to pay particular attention to. And we really need to pay attention to it when we reach the last book of the Bible that we're in right now. Otherwise, a lot of what John is taking pains, great pains to put down for us, we will simply miss. So when John says that Babylon has fallen and that the birds have come in and settled into its boundaries, what he's saying is, the human capacity to understand the difference between good and evil, 
The human capacity for redemption has now completely been lost. Why? Because the enemy himself has taken complete dominion over it. The birds now make that city its home, and the people are no more. It has fallen. And we'll see some of that come into play as the few remnant, the faithful of the remnant are now being evacuated in a couple of verses later on. Anyway, again, speaking about Babylon, the center of the denial of God's sovereignty, uh, the Apostle Paul goes in a long way in Romans chapter 1 and 2 to describe the symptom of sins visited upon a people who do not accept the sovereignty of God. And I'll leave you to do further digging in on that. But Romans 1 and 2 is a very good study on what happens to a people that denies God. It was turned over to the enemy as judgment. The angel proclaims charges against her, spiritual polygamy, the persecution of the faithful, enticing others into the rebellion, and underline this in your notes, using worldly riches to distract from heavenly rewards. As a Christian, you are promised everlasting life. What the enemy is doing through the ministry of Babylon right now, if you want to call it that, is to get you to turn your eyes off of and deny eternity and to focus instead on the here and now and only the pleasures that may be experienced in the here and now at the expense of the rest of eternity, the rest of time, the kingdom of God itself. Anyone at any point in time, before we get to the conclusion that we're talking about here in the book of Revelation, is an elegy, is, is, a potential son or daughter of God. And from the beginning, the enemy's purpose has been to distract us from that possibility. If he can tell you that you're better off dead, or that after your death, that's it, there's nothing else, this is all there is, there is no more, so let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die, then he's got us. But part of our goal as ministers of reconciliation is to get them to understand that, no, you are eternal. You are not merely this flesh and bone. You will continue on through eternity. You will echo from time immemorial. The question is, will you spend it in God's presence or will you spend it in utter exile away from he who created you? That's the question. trying to entice others with worldly riches to distract them from the possibility of heavenly reward. Moving on, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up into heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Pay her back the way that she also paid, and double it according to her works. In the cup in which she mixed a double mix, mix a double portion for her. As much as she glorified herself and indulged her sensual and excessive ways, give her that much torment and grief. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I am not a widow, and I have never, and I will never see grief. She's poking at Jerusalem here. 
At least that's one interpretation. I'll leave it up to you to, to decide that for yourself. But the Bible has been effectively the story of two cities, the tale of two cities, if you want. Babylon, the city of our way. Jerusalem, the city of God's way. When the people of God in Jerusalem turned their back on God, uh, God got their attention through exile, through destroying the city. We saw that with Babylon. We saw that with Rome. And here, for all intents and purposes, Babylon is delighting in the fact that even though the city was abandoned later on, it never truly was destroyed. It was conquered, but it still stood. It's been used, by, it's been used as a capital of three empires. But the only thing that ever claimed it was the desert, and that was only, as we saw with UNESCO, that was only a temporary stopgap because now Babylon herself is being rebuilt, reconstructed, restored. Isn't that scary? Anyway, verse 8, going on. For this reason, her plagues will come in just one day. In other words, God is going to hit her, hit her hard, and hit her fast. Death and grief and famine, she will be burned up with fire because the Lord God who judges her is mighty. So what we see first, to kind of piggyback off of what we had in the first little section here, uh, is a warning to bring the faithful out. And there are some issues with chronology here. Are we talking, is John uh, doing an exposition over certain spiritual truths, or is he going in chronological order? The words, then I heard, suggest that there is a chronology to these events. Also of note is the fact that the narrators, the angels who are speaking these things, seem to be self-aware. They know that John is writing this stuff down, and for John's benefit, as well as for our benefit, centuries later, they're saying things so that we can understand them. They are not only giving their own message, but they're narrating their own message. So that as John is pinning down the narrative of the book of Revelation, uh, we're getting the experience of the angels explaining their own words. Another remnant is apparently still living and ministering in, Revel in, in, excuse me, in the bounds of Babylon uh, as it's being judged by God. And this is an echo of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis 19, where, remember, Abraham kept bargaining with God. Will the judge of the righteous, if there are a hundred faithful left, or a hundred righteous left, will he still destroy the city? Pardon me, God, but what if there are only 20? Pardon me, God, but what if there are only 10? You remember that episode from Genesis. Well, basically, it's playing out here as well. God is urging the faithful to come out of her before he sends his final judgment. Because the city is to be utterly destroyed. The faithful must first be evacuated. So the, the, those who are ministering around the throne of God, including the saints and the angels, they are calling for poetic justice doubled in scope and severity. For as much as she is tortured, torture her. So for as much as she is is drunk the blood of the saints, make her drown in it. They're calling for violence. They're calling for she who was the oppressor to now be oppressed. And she is seeing to herself, I have been no widow. And again, that's a reference back to uh, the book of Lamentations in Isaiah 47. Uh, 
Something else that you might want to consider is in the Old Testament, in the uh, as we're getting ready in the next chapter to talk about the Bride of Christ. Uh, widows and women who engaged in premarital sex were unable to marry priests as well as divorcees. So effectively, what's, what she's doing, she's, she's touting her... She's not only touting herself as being better than Jerusalem in one way, she's saying that she's disqualified from being the city of God in another. You were a widow yourself. You fell. You were in fornication yourself. You are the reason that God abandoned you. You are the reason that God destroyed the temple twice. So she's poking fun at the people of God for their past sins. Do you see that? In the fact that, again, by the own law of God, they were unable to marry priests. Who is Christ? Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. Which is why the bride of Christ, theologically speaking, prophetically speaking, will have to be a virgin before him. We'll actually talk about that in more detail in the next chapter. So she's operating from this delusion of invulnerability. She is who she is. She is standing as mighty. She's better than Jerusalem, the city of God. Uh, but unbeknownst to her, she is subjected to the enemy. She's a slave considering herself a queen. She will be obliterated by God, both the capital and, according to the books of the prophets, all of the immediate countryside that, that are under her sway. Verse 9, the kings of the earth who have committed sexual immorality and shared in her sensual and excessive ways, will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke from her burning. They will stand afar off in fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in a single hour your judgment has come. They understand the fact that this destruction has something to do with her being judged. The merchants of the... There are three different types of people I want you to notice in your notes here. There's kings, merchants, and sailors. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo any longer. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, all kinds of fragrant wood products, objects of ivory, objects of expensive wood, brass, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, and frankincense, wine, oil, olive oil, fine flour and grain, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and slaves, human lives. We're going to talk about that passage in just a second, those last two especially. The fruit you craved has left you. All your splendid and glamorous things are gone. They will never find them again. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand afar off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, dressed in fine linen, purple, and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. For in a single hour such fabulous wealth was destroyed. And every shipmaster, seafarer, or sailors, all who do business by the sea, stood afar off, as they watched the smoke from her burning, and kept crying out, Who was like? Past tense. Who was like? 
the great city. They threw dust on their heads and kept crying out, weeping and mourning, Woe, woe, the great city, where all those who have ships on the sea became rich from her wealth. For in a single hour she was destroyed. Rejoice over her heaven, and all you saints, apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced on her the judgment she passed on you. So the citizens of the world cry out because of her destruction. Kings, in other words, the political powers of the day, cry out because they see the results of their own rebellion magnified through her, the rebellion against God and God's sovereignty. We used to believe in, in, the, in the feudal days in this doctrine called the divine right of kings. Basically, if you were born into this position, it was because God willed that you would be in that position in the first place. And even after that time, there was a certain understanding that if you were in that position, that you had spatial authority, yes, temporal authority, but that you also had a spiritual accountability. That as a ruler of any stripe, you were under the authority of God. This is a time and place where that is no longer the, a glimpse of an understanding. So they see the results of the rebellion. They real not realize that their, the, their rebellion is futile. And yet, as we'll see in a couple of chapters, they try to go into full-scale warfare anyway. They mourn the loss of their own unchecked power and wealth. There's also economic collapse. Luxury goods are no longer demanded. This is where the merchants come in. Precious metals, jewels, building materials, spices, scents, transportation, uh, delicacies. Those are all no longer available. But we see, I want you to note this in your notes as well. When it says slaves and human lives, in this particular translation, it, it, thinks that, it thinks that the Bible is saying one thing and then giving you a bigger explainer with that hyphen. The Greek says something a little different. The initial Greek, the word translated as slave, is not doulos. It's not the actual word for slave, the literal word for slave. It is soma, meaning a body. A human body, corpus in Latin, Latin. The word that it translates as lives is psyche, from which we get the word psychology. That word literally means a soul. So what is literally being said in that verse is that people are being traded both body and soul. Now, I'm not sure if we have anything that remotely sees into that ugliness right now in this day and age, but I, I want you to take note of that passage. Anyway, all supply chains end, and they mourn the loss of their unchecked greed. I'm sorry, the slides are a bit out of order. Let's move on. 
All right, the last group of people, the seafarers. They're mourning, basically, you, you had the kings, you had the, the governmental officials, you had the white collar, now you have the blue collar. The infrastructure, those who work in the field. All trade is ceased due to a, a lack of both supply and demand. Livelihoods are being lost. And they're mourning their, their own ability to provide for themselves. Their own sense of purpose and provision. But the people of God rejoice because His justice has finally come. Verse 21, A mighty angel picked up a stone like a large millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, This is why Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down violently and never found again. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, flautists, excuse me, trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No craftsman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a mill will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. And the voice of a groom and a bride will never be heard in you again. Anything that you do to provide for yourself, anything that you do uh, to gain meaning for yourself, anything that you do to, for the sake of happiness, all of that will be left completely desolate. All this will happen to you because your merchants were the nobility of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. In her was found the blood of the prophets and saints and all those slaughtered on the earth. The millstone into the ocean is a prophetic image, kind of like uh, Ezekiel and Daniel before him. John is seeing the angel actually give them a demonstration with an explainer. Babylon will be utterly destroyed in violence. No trace of her will remain. From this point on in history, no replacement for her will ever be built. The nobility of the earth also suggests that the people who are being judged, the human beings that are being judged, are those that identify themselves as the citizens of earth, as opposed to citizenship in heaven. And again, this is a judgment for enticement into sin, slash deception. Uh, notice that the word for sorceries in Greek, and we've talked about this a little bit before, is pharmakia. Pharmakia, while it can be translated as a form of sorcery, actually alludes to potion craft. They drank your poison. Or, as we might say since the 1970s, they drank the Kool-Aid. The Kool-Aid that you mix, the poison that you put together, they swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. She is identified as the cause of the death of the martyrs, as well as, and I found this interesting, the origin of all earthly conflict. God is the peacemaker. The enemy is the one who stirs the pot. And we go back from, uh, to consider back into Genesis 3, where the, the devil is a murderer of Adam and Eve. He might not have stabbed them with a knife, but he's the reason they're dead. Anyway, in concluding the chapter, this is 
the Babylon of John's day. One of the great cities of the world at its time. Uh, constantly fed by the Euphrates River. Sheltered by it as well with a, with a, two, uh, with a, a giant moat ringing the city. Supposedly holding one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Um, she was considered in, indestructible in her own day. In fact, as I've talked about beforehand, when Cyrus took it over, the only way Cyrus could get through it was to dam off the Euphrates River upstream to allow its to, water level to sink down and by night, he marched his army straight into the city and took it without a battle. That's a prophetic insight. Because again, Babylon has been conquered, but never destroyed. And in the case of Cyrus the Great, who freed the Jews, who commissioned the construction of the second temple, he did it with even, without, even having to go to, without even having to fight. If you were in Babylon the night that Cyrus's, uh, of Cyrus' conquest, you went to sleep being part of the Babylonian Empire, and when you woke up, there was a guy in a, in a, in a Medan imperial outfit uh, staring at you with a spear, and you woke up in the Medo-Persian Empire. It was a conquest without a battle. Anyway, uh, before we conclude, I wanted to give you this harmony of three books of prophecy. The book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Revelation. This is spelled out clearer on your notes. Uh, make sure that you have a copy of them. And if you don't at home, please make sure that you go to our website at highlandbaptistchurch.org. They'll, they'll be in session 30, page number four. So it, I find it interesting, and I know they didn't have chapter numbers back then, but I still find it interesting that through the, through the experience and the, the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, I don't consider chapter numbers per se as influenced in the same way that Holy Scripture is influenced as in God breathed, but I still think that there is a dynamic at play here where he kind of, uh, he was an inspiring force, I'll put it that way. I can't build a doctrine on it. I just find it interesting. And this is one of the cases where I find it interesting. Isaiah chapters 13 and 14. Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51. Revelation chapters 17 and 18. Three books of prophecy, each with two chapters of prophecy on this specific subject. Now, in Isaiah, we talk about Babylon as a literal place in chapter 19. And in Jeremiah 50, excuse me, in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 19, we, we understand that the Babylon he's talking about is the Babylon of the Chaldeans or the Assyrian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. In Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 40, same thing. In the book of Revelation, it is alluded to, but uh, with the ambiguity surrounding that book, I can't put a specific place on there, even though that's the interpretation I fall on. Uh, second place, that she had enticed other nations into spiritual adultery and becomes drunk with the pleasure of it. This is talked about in, Jer in Jeremiah verse, excuse me, chapter 50, verse 7, and of course, Revelation chapter 17, verse 2, and 18, verses 3 through 
The, de the depictions of her wearing scarlet, purple, and the golden cup also happen in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 7. And of course, echoed through Revelation 17, verses 3 and 4, uh, 18, verses 6 through 16. That Babylon will be judged upon the day of the Lord as a literal place. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 through 13. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 25. And in my interpretation, uh, at least as far as being judged on the day of the Lord, both of the, excuse me, you could argue both of those entire chapters fall along those lines. That she will be attacked by many nations. Isaiah 13, verses 4 through 5. Isaiah 14, verses 2 and 26. Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 2, 9, and 41 through 46. Jeremiah 51, verse 7. Revelation 17, verse 16. Isn't that interesting that these three prophecies, these three books of prophecy, separated by so many centuries, have this kind of harmony through them? That her destruction will be comparable to Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaiah 13, verse 19. Jeremiah 50, verse 40. And the implication by circumstances on Revelation 18, verses 4 through 8. And that she will never be rebuilt. In fact, utter destruction, never to be rebuilt. Even her bricks will never be reused. And that's one of the prophetic fingerprints where we know that this has yet to take place. Because as we talked about in the last session, the, the bricks from the ruins of Babylon were actually used to help build Baghdad. But after this coming tragedy, not even her building material will ever be recycled. So that's Isaiah chapter 13, verse 20. Echoed, same book, chapter 14, verse 23. Jeremiah chapter 50 verses 13, 26, and 39. Jeremiah 51 verses 26, 29, and 37. And in Revelation chapter 18, 21 through 24, the only difference in those passages is that uh, John does not mention the reuse of the bricks. But the other two prophets go out of their way to mention that as part of their condemnation of the city. So for next session... Read through Revelation chapter 19. We've talked about this several times before, even in our Torah study. I want you to think about what you remember about the ancient Jewish wedding traditions. The ancient Jewish wedding traditions. What do you remember that we talked about regarding the Battle of Armageddon and its preparations, as well as what you've been taught about in times past? Please journal and share your own questions and your thoughts and your discoveries. Share them with your groups. Make sure that you are meeting at least for a brief phone call with your Bible study groups. And with that, we'll take questions. Any questions before we dismiss? Yes, Fern. I'm not sure that the question was whether pharmacia refers to modern day drugs, specifically uh, if we're talking about controlled substances and that kind of thing. 
In this particular passage, I don't believe so, but in other passages of Scripture, yes. When we talk about sorceries, uh, devising addictive substances for the sake of, of benefiting yourself while penalizing the person that you're selling things to, there's a lot of that throughout Scripture. But yeah, pharmakia, again, it, it's, we, it's sometimes very subtly translated as just sorcery. But it's a specific school, if you want to think of it, of sorcery, which means creating potions, potion craft, poison craft. But yes, addictiveness, that's definitely something that the Bible heartily condemns. With that word, in fact. Anything else? But in, in the case of this passage, uh, he's, John's talking about uh, not just person to person, but you're being addicted nation to nation. That all of them are becoming addicted through trade, through wealth, through uh, excess, through decadence. And because they've been made happy through all this stuff that Babylon is supplying with her poisons, they're all dying spiritually at the same time because they can't see eternity over the fact that they're well-fed and happy right now. It's, it's a cruel deception that will lead to their spiritual downfall. Anything else? Anything from online? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Haughtiness and pride. And yes, the haughtiness and pride exhibited in Babylon here. And, and the fact that she is so drunk on her own poison, hearkening back to that, that she can't see the danger of her situation. She thinks she is controlling the devil himself. How's that for delusion? I mean... It's, it, it turns back around, literally biting her. Um, you know, but it's the haughtiness. What is the, the uh, from Proverbs? Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty look before a fall. And I think there is a direct tie there with what we're seeing here in, uh, in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, that she, she considers herself to be great when she's riding the instrument of her own destruction. Anything else? If not, let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, it is again that we offer you praise, honor, and glory for the ability to come together to study your word in this depth and to see that through all the challenges that we face, Lord, you are still in control. That even through the destruction of that city, your graciousness and your love stays your hand long enough to rescue the faithful, to have mercy on those who call upon your name. And just as we come out from this world crying out for Christ, 
we know with a certainty that you hear us when we call you. That when we bow our hearts to you, Lord, you hear our prayers and you are a great giver of mercy. May your faithful love to us never go without recognition as again we give you thanks and praise for the certainty of your grace as well as praise in advance for your continued faithfulness to us though we do not deserve it. For it is in the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person. To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.